Good morning. Good morning. Um, since Will had that fantastic joke, I'm not going to give you a good introduction this morning. I'm going to. Uh, I want to actually review where we've been in Romans 11 as we begin this morning because we've got to have this background. We've got to have this um, context clearly in mind as we move forward for today's message. And today's message is pretty pivotal in this chapter. So if you've got your Bibles and uh, want to look at them, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Stand with me and we'll read today's passage. I've wrestled with how to do this, what was going to be best. <clears throat> but we'll read today's passage and then we'll review where we've been in Romans 11 up to this point. So Romans 11, 16 through 24. If you have good old-fashioned paper Bibles and want to follow there, you can. If you don't have one, we'll have it up on the screen here for you. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, <clears throat> if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let me pray. God, there's a lot to cover this morning. There's a lot to try to grasp and understand in our journey through this chapter of Romans. God, in this moment, as I seek to convey Your Word, which is a holy Awful privilege, God. I lift my eyes up and I know that my help comes from You, Your Holy Spirit, to teach and to convict and to draw and to cut and to heal and to bless. God, have Your way with Your Word. Have Your way with Your people. We ask it in Jesus' name and Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. If you remember way back, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, Romans 8, the great 8, just wonderful, beautiful promises, and therefore now no condemnation, we cannot be separated, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then we went into Romans 9, where Paul began to defend those promises and that word by saying what? He was saying that he was looking for and worried about, and I would say worried is probably a good word, uh, worried about 
his brethren, according to the flesh, the Israelites. He says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, and he wished that he could be cut off from Christ if it were possible, in order that his Israelite brothers and sisters would be saved. And then in verse 6 of chapter 9, he made this statement, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. And what he's saying is, you've got these Israelites who were the covenant people of God, and it looks like they have fallen away. And that would make it look like God has failed, and if God has failed, the word of God has failed. But 9-6 is pivotal in this whole book. And, and what Paul says there, it's what, what makes, it's what makes chapters 9, 10, and 11 so important in the book of Romans. Because all that stuff, chapters 1 through 8, where we saw sin and our need for righteousness, how to be made right with God, which is righteousness through faith, there's no other way. And then we saw the blessings contained in that through our outline. If all of that is true, then the Word of God is true. And if the Word of God is true, then all that's true. But... What if the Word of God isn't true? And it looks as though the Word of God may not be true because the Israelites, the chosen people of God, doesn't appear to be a part of this movement of God. And that troubles Paul, but Paul says, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. And he goes through chapter 9, and we looked a whole lot in chapter 9 at the sovereign plan of God. We looked at election and God's sovereign choice about who is right with God. And then we moved into chapter 10 and we saw that there's something that walks hand in hand with God's sovereignty and that's man's responsibility. And all through chapter 10 we saw that man is responsible. That man has a responsibility to look to God, to choose God, to love God, to serve God in the midst of God's sovereignty. And chapter 10 painted a pretty bleak picture of the Jews uh, and Paul used a whole lot of Old Testament passages to show that they knew. They knew what the righteous requirement of the law was. And at the end of chapter 10, but of Israel, God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And then we came into chapter 11. And then Paul starts chapter 11 with this question in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? And we spent chapter 10 talking about how disobedient they were, how they sought to establish their own righteousness. So he asks in chapter 11, has God rejected His people? And the answer was what? By no means. May it never even come into your mind as a possibility. God forbid. And Paul said, because I'm an Israelite, it shows that God's not rejected His people because He's using me. He used the, the example of the remnant in Elijah's time when Elijah thought he was the only one left. And God said, nope, I have kept for myself a remnant of 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So there's a remnant, and it's by grace, chosen by grace. And then we spent the next week, and this, this was a tough message for me that next week, <clears throat> where we talked about God giving them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see. David saying, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them and bend their backs forever. And then we looked at, last week, Paul saying, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And what was the answer? By no means. No. After all that harsh judgment, spirit of stupor, blind eyes, deaf ears, bent backs, tables being a retribution, have they stumbled to the point that they have fallen away? 
And Paul said, nope. Actually, what's happened is since they sinned, since they have fallen away, since they've been hardened, salvation has come to who? The Gentiles. So as to do what? To make Israel jealous. And then verse 12 said, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then Paul said, I am the apostle to the Gentiles, but even in that, I minister to the Gentiles so that I might possibly make my brothers, the Jews, jealous and some of them might be saved. Verse 15, for if their, recon- if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, I go through all that because verse 16 is tough. Verse 16 has caused me a lot of problems this week. So if you've got problems, well, I've had problems too. How's that? We're even. Um, go to verse 16. A lot of translations, a lot of Bibles that are laid out in paragraph form and such include verse 16 with last week's paragraph. Now, why do I say that? What does it matter? Well, I'm going to be a little bit radical here. I don't think it belongs in that paragraph. I don't believe it's the ending thought of that line of thought. I believe it's the beginning thought of what we're going to look at today. And the commentaries are all over the place on verse 16. I mean all over the place. If you listen to four different people or read four different commentaries, you're probably going to hear four different things about verse 16. And I know that you are going, I don't understand what this has to do with me this morning. Trust me, okay? For us to understand this passage, verse 16 is tough. So what I'm doing is I'm using verse 16 as the introduction to this bigger paragraph that we're looking at today. Today's going to be a little different than normal, not as much word for word, but we're going to do thought by thought this morning because this is a big paragraph. We don't have time to do word for word. We've got to, we've got to get the big picture. So let's start with verse 16, keeping in mind everything we just looked at, 1 through 8, 9, 10, and 11, where we've been. Verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So, remember last week, we saw that God used the falling away of the Jews to open the door of salvation to the Gentiles, and He used the salvation of the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. And we ended by seeing that the return of the Jews to the plan of God would be like life from the dead. And we said that that whole plan may look odd to us, but it is accomplishing exactly what God intended to accomplish, which was salvation for the whole world. We'll talk more about that. Now, Paul shows how the two groups in God's plan are related to each other. If Jews falling away brought salvation to Gentiles, and if Gentiles being saved is to make Jews jealous, who's right? Who's wrong? Is one group superior to the other? And he starts this thought here in verse 16 with what seems like an odd thought, an odd analogy, at least to me. <coughs> Excuse me. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. What? I mean, I read that and I'm going, what? Well, let's get a little clarity. This goes back to Old Testament law, and I actually listen to this in my journey through the Bible this year in Numbers. Numbers 15. 
verses 17 to 21. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. So now listen. <laughs> you ever get into the, the tithe, 10% offering, giving to the Lord, conversation with people, and they're like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I can afford to give. Let me tell you what. If you lived in Israel as God's people during the time of the Exodus and as they moved into the Promised Land, you gave a portion of everything down to the dough. So you're making dough in your kitchen. Part of that goes to God. And he says here, as you're making your first dough, as you're making, you bring in the crops, they grind up the wheat and they're making dough out of it. He says, the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution. So if you're making that first loaf of bread, some of that comes off and you make a loaf of bread and you take it to the temple to give to the priests. You say you can't afford to give out of your paycheck. Again, read through the Old Testament. Those folks were offering fools. It seemed like all they got done was offering and offering and offering and offering. Wheat and dough and rams and lambs and kids and everything. The first of everything went to God. So what Paul is saying back here in Romans is, if the offering of the first part of the dough, which was required by the Israelites, is holy, what does that mean for the rest of the lump that's left? So they pulled some out. You know, you do this when you grab bread, right? When it's dough. You've got to grab it like this. I don't know why I'm doing that. It looks like Pac-Man to y'all, I guess. But grab a piece, you pull it off. That's God's. This is holy unto the Lord. Well, what about the rest of the lump? Is it still God's? What did we learn through the treasure principle? It all belongs to God. So if the first fruits of the dough are holy, what about the rest of the dough? It's holy too because it's God's and He's letting you use it is what it boils down to. <coughs> Excuse me. So what we see here is that the Israelites were to give God the first of their blessings in their lives down to their dough. So if you had a lump of dough, they're going to make bread out of it. You're supposed to take the first piece of it and make a loaf of bread offered to the Lord as the first loaf, which was a way of both honoring God and providing for the priests. Little aside here, if you want to honor the priests, I love bread. Bread is a good way to honor the priests. Um, so I'm, I'm in tune with the Lord here. We're, we're in concert with each other. Bread, priests, yes, is what we say. Butter isn't bad either. So <clears throat> anyway, has nothing to do with anything. I just like bread. <clears throat> so <clears throat> if the dough offered as first fruits is holy or set apart to God, so is the whole lump. It's all God's and it's all holy. So what does that matter in our context that, we, that we're dealing in? What's, what's that got to do with Jews and Gentiles and who has fallen away and who's jealous of who? Is he saying that if the first Jews were saved, then all of them are? Because some commentators say that. Some believers say that. But what have we already seen in Romans? Have, has all of Israel been saved? 
ethnic Israel? No. Again, remember, the beginning of chapter 9, Paul's like, my heart is sick because they're not saved. You go back to Elijah's time in the height of the kingdom and there were only 7,000 people who were saved at that time out of millions. So this can't be saying that if a little piece of the Jews are saved, then all the Jews are saved. Right? It can't mean that. Because we know that not all Israel has been saved. We know that. We've established that through many weeks of digging through 9, 10, and 11. So that's not what he's saying. So, but could the original Jewish remnant have been the first fruits? And the people who are saved after them be the whole lump? That's the route that I'm running here. Okay, so what I'm saying is that first fruits was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and that original chosen remnant of God. And this is, again, very, very, very important if we're going to understand the rest of this passage. That's why I'm belaboring it, okay? Stay with me. Foundations aren't pretty, but you like to have them on your house, right? What I'm proposing is that verse 16 is saying that the first fruits of the dough, the first piece off, was God's covenant work through Abraham and his descendants who would be saved after him. So that's God pulling out the first piece. And that the rest of the lump is going to be everybody else who is saved, truly saved, as a result of God's covenant with Abraham and his race. Okay? That's, that's the route that we're running. And I think the next analogy in verse 16 seems to confirm that as well. Let me go back to verse 16 of chapter 11. Sixteen. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The first part of the dough and the whole lump are holy. Here, the root is holy and so are the branches. You see the connection? So in the dough part, little piece pulled off, rest of the lump is holy. Here, in the tree thing, the root is holy. So if the root is holy... The branches are holy too. Okay? You see the connection? And if you put that in the context of the Jew and Gentile thought, with the Jews being the first fruits of the dough and the root of the tree, the the truly saved believing Jews, and the Gentiles and the Jewish remnant that are saved after the first group of Jewish believers are the rest of the lump and the branches, then I think we can start to put this puzzle together. So that original pull-off is the first fruits of the dough and the roots of the tree. Everybody that would believe after them is the rest of the lump and the branches. Okay? Again, we're just putting puzzle pieces together. Now, is one group more holy than the other? Well, holy is holy. We use descriptive adjectives. So holy, very holy. Well, holy is holy. So is one group more holy than the other? Is one more a part of God's plan than the other? Is one superior to the other? Be careful. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time today looking at. So, let's go to verse 17. Actually, we're going to read 17 and 18 together. 
But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Okay, so now we can really start digging into this analogy some and see how we should relate to the Jews in particular and the rest of the church in general. So he runs with the tree analogy. He never goes back to the dough thing. Okay, We're, we're past the dough. We're moving past the dough. It's rising. We're going to set it aside let it rise. Uh, And he compares in this tree analogy the setting aside or the hardening of the Jews as them being branches broken off. And what happened after, after they were broken off? Was the tree cut down and abandoned? No. He says, you, the Gentiles, non Jews, who are compared to a wild olive shoot, were grafted in. Now let me tell you a little something about olive trees. Olives were probably the biggest economic contributor to the nation of Israel. They used them for everything. They ate them, they drank them, they used them for oil. They, after they crushed them, they used the remains to do different stuff. And olive trees were important. Olive trees actually became a symbol of the Jewish nation. So hence Paul using this illustration. And they were so good at cultivating these things. There are some that are hundreds of years old still in Israel today. They knew how to take care of them. They cultivated them. And it was a picture of God's care for them. So he runs with this analogy. He runs with this olive tree thing and he says, Now, if you, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot... Now you had these cultivated olive trees that they really took care of and you had these shoots. Have you ever seen acorns laying everywhere in the fall? And like, like next spring or something you see this little shoot of a tree up? He's talking about, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about a wild olive shoot. Something has fallen off the olive tree. Well, what do you think you do if you're cultivating an olive tree and these shoots are popping up everywhere? Normally. Yank them out of there because they're going to leach the soil and the cultivated tree that you've gotten crops from year after year after year are going to suffer from lack of nutrition. So you yank these wild olive shoots up. You don't let them grow. That makes sense? Okay. So that's, that's what he's talking about. So he's, he's talking about the branches are broken off. And what happened was God in this olive... I don't know if it's orchard or... Anybody know what that is? Olive grove? Is it a grove? Okay. I'll take your word for it. I don't know. Olive grove. <clears throat> God took the wild olive shoot. He cut off the branches that had been producing fruit. Now, were they producing fruit? Boy, that's... No, they weren't. He broke them off... And he grafted wild olive shoots in. Who was the wild olive shoots? Gentiles. We were. Okay? So, are you familiar with the practice of grafting? Do you know what that entails? You got to cut a plant and you take the wild olive shoot, you you cut the, the cultivated olive tree, and a lot of times they'll put the wild shoot in and they'll wrap it up or bind it some way. And what happens is the life from the cultivated tree starts to feed that branch. Now, was that branch alive when it was yanked out or pulled up? Well, it might be alive, but it was going to die soon. Well, it gets plugged into the tree, and the tree starts to provide nourishment to it, and it starts to grow, and it starts to become fruitful. Okay? So the picture here 
is that God, through the, the roots of the ancient Jewish people, Abraham and the people who were promised all these covenants, the roots start to supply life to the shoot that's being grafted in. Now, isn't that a beautiful picture? Can you just see yourself plugged into the plan of God and Him nurturing you and caring for you and making sure that you're receiving what you need through the roots? That's powerful. That's good stuff and that's what God has done to us. So, the plant or the tree is sliced open, another part of a plant or a plant as a whole is joined to the sliced open section of the original plant or tree and the newly implanted plant, newly implanted plant, starts to draw life from the other plant and is fed and nourished by the original plant until it becomes one, until it becomes one, until it becomes one with the original plant and starts to bear fruit since it's being fed and nourished. So you Gentiles, although a wild wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Verse 18. So what should we do? The root's holy, we're holy, as branches grafted in. What makes the branches holy? The life from the root. So what should our attitude be? Do not be arrogant toward the branches. What branches? Branches that were cut off. Now imagine being grafted in. Now again, we've got, to, we've got to have talking trees, so let's go to the land of Oz or something and try to figure out the talking trees. Branches are cut off. You're spliced in, grafted in, and you're looking down at the branches that were broken off. Ha ha! I'm in your house now. I live where you used to live, and you dead down. Ha ha! I like your house. It's great. It's awesome. God must really like me better than you because He cut you off so that He could put me in. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. What's He saying? Don't elevate yourself in your minds that you are better, that you are more holy, that you are more deserving of grace than the Jewish people were. Now it would be easy to look back at the Jews and then look now and see that they're not in the tree anymore and say that maybe, listen, here's the tendency, maybe there's something special about me. Maybe there's something special about America. Maybe there's something special about my time of people, my generation. Maybe God looked at us and said, man, I'd like to have them more than I want these Jews. Be careful. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You get that? Branches are lifeless without roots to support them, nourish them, and supply them with life. And so if you think you're so special... Remember that God's covenant was with Abraham to make those of His bloodline recipients of His grace and love. Listen to what I'm about to say, and we've touched on this before. The Jews are a privileged people. Romans 9, 4 and 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ 
who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You say nothing special about the Jews. God made the Jews special. And there is something special about the Jews. The Jews are a privileged people and they have a unique and irreplaceable place in God's plan. And they support us as branches, as Gentile believers. But what about us Gentiles? What about us? Surely we're special little unicorns too, right? 11.19 Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul takes the attitude of the Gentiles into account here and says it would be somewhat natural to say, hey, wait just a second. I got something special going on too. Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And what does Paul say to that? Verse 20, that is true. It's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud but fear. And here's a big, big, big part of this passage. Does Paul refute that branches were broken off so the Gentiles might be grafted in? Nope, he does not refute that. He says, that is true. And why were they broken off, those branches? Because you were better, greater, more special? No, they were broken off because of their unbelief. What did God tell the Israelites when they were going into the promised land? He's like, you're not moving into this promised land because you were some great nation. Matter of fact, I chose you because you were the least of the nations. I'm sending you in there to punish the iniquity of the Amorite. I'm sending you in there because these sinners in this land need punished. And I chose you to be my vessel to do that. And that's really what he's saying here. It's true branches were broken off so that you could be grafted in, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. Now keep in mind, that's the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Physical, ethnic Israel. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Their being broken off was because they were unbelieving. Their being broken off was a direct result of what? Their sin. And that's what we've spent chapter 10 and part of chapter 11 establishing is they chose that path and God hardened their hearts in response to their choosing that path. And in this analogy, he goes so far as to say He cut them off the tree because of their unbelief, because of their sin. So God didn't see us Gentiles and set His affection on us because we were so attractive The Jews were unbelieving, so God broke them off. And He is going to have His glory. God is going to get His fruit. He's going to have His olives. So He grafted in wild olive shoots who could never be a bountiful olive tree on their own. And He made those shoots fruitful with the nourishment and life from the holy root of His covenants and promises to bless the world through the seed of Abraham. So... How should we respond? And here's the crux of what we need to zero in on in this passage today. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. How are we saved? How are we made righteous? What's the theme of the book of Romans? How to be right with God and how are we made right with God? Justification by faith. 
by grace through faith is the more full answer. But Romans talks a lot about faith. The whole book of Romans is about being justified by faith alone. So if we see that Jews were rejected and cut off because of their unbelief, how should we respond to that? We should stand fast through faith. Don't be like the Jews, but be supported by their holy root and stand fast through faith. Don't do what they didn't do. That's too many negatives, isn't it? Don't do what they did. Let's say it that way. Do what they didn't do. That's what I'm trying to say. Stand fast in faith in who God is, what He has done to make us holy, to graft us into where we would not be alone by ourselves. Live by trusting in Him, placing your faith in Him. Not who you are, not what you have done, but faith in Him and His faithfulness. Which is a whole lot of what we sung about this morning, right? It's not about my performance. I will glory in my Redeemer. I lift my eyes up. My help comes from the Lord. That's faith. Faith is looking away from our performance, looking away from what we've done, and looking to Him, what He has accomplished. I can look at my sin. I can be introspective all day and it's going to ruin me. But if I look to Him and see the righteousness that is given to me by faith in Him, well, that's a game changer. So the Jews became arrogant and proud and said, Look at us. Check us out. We are God's chosen people, air quotes included. And the rest of you are Gentiles. The rest of the world are not included in God's promises. And we will establish our own righteousness. Look at our law. Look at the way we live. We give down to the dough. And you don't. So God loves us and not you. And God said, cut you off because you have tried to establish your own righteousness. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. And the end of the verse drives it home. So do not become proud, but fear. Now wait, what? I totally get the do not become proud part, So that's the whole point here, right? Pride can lead to unbelief like the Jews, which leads to being cut off. But instead of becoming proud, Paul's command is to... What? Fear. (laughs) Now what's that mean? Now the Greek word for fear here, here is phobio. Sound familiar? Anybody got a phobia? Anybody scared of spiders? Arachnophobia? Anybody fear big crowds? Agoraphobia? Anybody scared of olives? Olivophobia? I don't know. I don't know. So the word is phobeo for fear. Now, what do you think of that? Do not become proud, but fear. Fear. Have a phobia. Fear of what? Next verse. Now, let me tell you what. We're about to slide down the hill on our hind ends on some slick ice here. Slick ice. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. I'm about to get all fundamental here is what I'm about to do. Fear. Fear what? (laughs) For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. 
Now, I would be tempted to think that Paul might be saying fear, maybe not in a frightening way. Stand in awe, reverence. But then verse 21 comes in. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Hmm. That sounds like something to be afraid of. Scared of. (laughs) It's scary to think about being cut off like the branches that were the Jewish people. I don't want to be cut off. And I really think that being cut off means not having eternal life not having a part in God's kingdom. Israel was cut off because of unbelief, and the only way we can be right with God is by believing Him. So to be cut off for unbelief is to not have eternal life. And I don't know about you, but that scares me. It's scary to think about that because that means hell. And hell means punishment forever. Where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. And the smoke of their anguish goes up day and night. That's what being cut off means. Now, does that scare you? Scares me. So do not become proud, but fear. Fear what? Fear being cut off. (laughs) And if He didn't spare the natural branches, what in the world makes you think that He'll spare you? Because you're better than they were? We just saw that's not true. So what's going on here? Because that's rough. Does that mean we can lose our place in God's kingdom? Can we lose our salvation? Because if we can, that's scary. Should I be afraid of losing my salvation? Should I be afraid in light of this verse of losing my eternal life? Is that what Paul's saying? Well, if so, then chapter 8 was a bunch of malarkey. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Really? There is therefore now no condemnation. What about all that? So should I be afraid or should I feel secure? Or should I be afraid instead of feeling secure? No. No, you shouldn't be afraid of losing your salvation. (laughs) So what's Paul saying? He is saying, surely, that we are to stand in awe of the fact that we have been graciously, by God's sovereign choice, grafted into the very life sap of God and are partakers of the covenants made with God's people so there can be no pride, only awe and wonder. And if there is pride in our standing, if there is arrogance toward those outside the covenant, then we don't understand grace and we have missed grace and we should be afraid because that pride is proof that we are not resting in grace but boasting in our performance and our standing. So if there is pride in your spiritual life, if pride is the basis of your spiritual life, if you can look at Jews and say, stupid Jews bunch of losers. Look at us. Look at us Gentiles. We've got it figured out. You know what? If that's the basis of your spiritual life, you need to be afraid because you're not saved. 
Be afraid. Be very afraid. If you're boasting in your performance and your standing, you are boasting in your works and you are not saved. Period. And that should make you afraid. If God didn't spare the natural branches of the tree because of their unbelief, then He will not spare us either. So if you are arrogant, so are the Jews. If you're boasting in who you are and your spiritual standing in and of yourself, your performance, and you're elevating yourself over somebody else's performance, you are not saved. You're boasting in your own righteousness. You have sought to establish your own righteousness and that should make you very afraid. Fear that. 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, (laughs) you too will be cut off. He's not talking about Bono and the boys when he says you too, by the way. This verse, guys, this verse encapsulates so much of what we've seen in chapters 9 to 11. Paul is talking about being cut off, being grafted in, not being proud, fearing it all, fears that it may all fall through, and then brings us back to the person of God. And he says, note then the kindness of and the severity of God. If you look in different translations, I don't know what you got in front of you, but the word note is translated in different translations as note, notice, behold, and consider. And it boils down to making sure that you see and understand something. Bob asked to meet this week, and what did I do? I made a note. Because if I didn't make a note... I would forget. And what Paul is saying here is, note, pay attention to, behold, look upon, and understand. Make sure that you get this. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Take a good long look at what? The kindness and the severity of God. of God. Note, notice, behold and consider God's kindness and His severity. Pay attention to God's kindness and pay attention to God's severity. They are both necessary if we are to understand God. Now we had a pretty tough message two weeks ago about sinners getting what they deserve. Remember that? It's tough. It's hard to grasp that. But Paul says here that we should note God's severity toward those who have fallen as well as His kindness to us. And we love to celebrate God's kindness toward us. But Paul says here we should pay special attention to both His kindness and His severity, His severity toward those who have fallen if we are going to avoid pride and unbelief. Said something two weeks ago, it's got me in trouble. I'm okay with getting in trouble. Said two weeks ago that I am of the opinion that we might be able to see hell from heaven. Let me explain something. I don't mean that we'll be able to see into hell and see people suffering, but I believe we might see the fire 
of the torment going up day and night? I believe that. I believe that. Why do I believe that? I believe it ties into what we're looking at here. We should worship God for hell. God's wrath is as worthy of worship as His grace is. Let me show you something, what I'm talking about. This is just one example. Revelation 16, 4 through 7. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the heavens say, Oh God, why are you being so mean? Why would you do that to the waters, God? Now they can't drink anything. That seems really... Oh God, that, that seems like just too much. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And this is just one example of many in Revelation where God pours out wrath in one way or another and what follows that wrath is worship. God punishes evil and His people praise Him for it. And it's not just in Revelation, it's through the whole Bible. So note then the kindness and the severity of God. Pay attention to it. Think about it. Ponder it. Wrestle with it. Am I saying celebrate that people are hurt and celebrate that people are going to hell? No. But I'm saying understand that that is the truth. Note then the severity of God. Pay attention and stand in awe of both the kindness and the severity of God. Worship Him for both. Severity toward those who have fallen. Pay attention to that. And pay attention to God's kindness to you provided, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. We are to continue in God's kindness. We are to rest in His goodness, knowing and experiencing His grace. If you don't rest in grace, if you work and try to impress God and others and yourself and live in pride, you will be cut off. Now does that mean you were saved before? No, it means you weren't ever saved. 1 John says, They went out from us because they never were of us. Read the parables in Matthew. Matthew 13, it's the fruitful plant, the plant that produces fruit that shows that it has the life of the root flowing through it. All the other plants, they may spring up and look good for a little while, but they don't ever produce fruit. They may spring up and look good, but then they start to produce fruit of pride and arrogance and they're not trusting in kindness anymore. There's no fruit and they die. And we should worship God for that. That's a lot to take in and we don't have a lot of time.
Provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Continue in God's kindness. Experience His grace. If you don't rest in grace, you will be cut off. Because you don't know grace if you're proud. And if you don't know grace, you don't know God. Let's finish up verses 23 and 24. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they being the Jews, if they don't continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul returns his attention to the Jewish nation here and says that even they... The proud, arrogant, exclusive Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, then they will be grafted into the tree of God's blessing again. Why? Because they're good and deserve it? No. Then why? For God. For God. For God has the power to graft them in again. It's all up to Him. If they will believe in Him, which is their responsibility, then God can make them alive again. Which is a reminder of last week when it said their inclusion would be life from the dead. God has the power to graft them in again. For if we as Gentiles were wild olive branches out on our own with no hope, were so arrested by God's grace that we were grafted in and made partakers of God's grace contrary to our nature then how much more will the natural branches be able to be grafted back into their original tree? If it worked for us, if God worked for us, how much more will it work for them? And it's that same argument style that we looked at last week. If God gives life from the dead, how much more can He give life from life? So can that happen? Can they be grafted in again? Might that happen? Well, we'll have to wait and see. But for now, application. And where in the world do you start with application in this passage? <laughs> Let me start with, I've got three P's. I don't know why it's always P. It's just the way it happens, okay? Just drink too much fluid. <laughs> um, okay. The first P is praise. Praise God for His kindness and praise God for His severity. And I know we wrestle with that as middle class Americans. I get it. It just doesn't feel right to say, Just are your judgments, O God, for they did this and they deserve this. Now, it's easy to praise God for kindness. That, that's easy. But sometimes, what about Jonah? Did Jonah praise God for his kindness? He said, I want to die because you saved the Assyrians. I want to die. So was he happy? Was he rejoicing and thanking God for kindness? No, he wasn't. So it's easy. it can happen that you don't thank God for kindness. What if God saves somebody that you don't like? Praise God for His kindness. What if God doesn't save somebody else? Praise God for His severity. I'm not saying praise God because somebody didn't get saved. 
I'm saying just are the judgments of God and we are to praise Him for His kindness and His severity. That's something we've got to cultivate as Christian people. We do not, Scripture makes it clear that we are not to delight in the misfortunes of others. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a God who is holy, right, and just and pours out His justice and His wrath against sin. Praise God for His kindness and His severity. So praise was the first point of application. The second is prejudice. Let me tell you something. There is no room for prejudice amongst the people of God. Race, ethnicity, religion, political affiliation. If I hear one more of my Christian friends make fun of liberals... I'm going to say you're prejudiced. Now listen, I think the liberals are wrong. I think the progressives are wrong. And I'm a social worker. But am I going to make fun of them and exalt myself over them because I think that I'm better than them? Smarter than them? Something like... I better be careful. It's not just political affiliation. Other races, other cultures, other ethnicities. If you are elevating yourself over any person or group of people, that is prejudice. Making fun of them because they believe this. Making fun of them because they look this way. Making fun of them because they come from this nation. That is anti-Christ. And there's no room for it in the Christian church. Defend the truth. Stand for truth. Do not compromise the truth. Yes. But do not look at yourself and stand in prejudice over any group of people. Do not become arrogant, is what the passage said. Which leads us to our third application point, which is pride which is the root of prejudice. Do not think too highly of yourself. What did Paul say to the Gentiles here? It's the root that makes you holy. So don't look at the branches that were broken off and say, man, I must have done something right. I promise that statement won't work before the judgment seat of Christ. What was it that sent Satan careening to earth? It was pride. I will make myself like the Most High. I will exalt myself above Him. What was it he tempted Adam and Eve with? You won't surely die. You'll be like God knowing both good and evil. He appealed to their pride. And they bit into it. Hook, line, and sinker. And there is nothing so subversive, nothing so destructive in the Christian life than pride. 
and we have to kill it. And pride is a slippery, tricky thing. It's hard. Are there things we should be proud about? Are there things we should be proud of? Should I be proud of my kids? Yeah. But if my pride leads me to boasting in myself, I run the danger of being cut off. Nothing more dangerous to the Christian life than pride. And if pride has a root in your heart, if pride is the fruit producing life sap of your life, you are not a Christian. You are trusting in your own righteousness, establishing your own righteousness, and you will be cut off. Depart from me, I never knew you, is what you'll hear on the last day. And that's scary. So Christian, check the pride in your life. Check for prejudice in your life. And praise God for His kindness and His severity. Unbeliever, you sit here this morning, your pride says, I don't need God. I'm doing all right. I'm not a sinner. That pride will lead you directly into the pits of hell where you will spend eternity suffering. Abandon that pride. Run from that pride. Know your sin and come to God who can give you the gift of grace as He crucifies your pride in the person of Christ and walk in humility knowing that you could have never saved yourself. You could have never been good enough. You could have never done enough. And rest. That's a tiring way to live, trying to earn God's approval. Sinner, this morning, abandon your pride and rest in the righteousness of Christ. Let Him graft you in as part of the remnant chosen by grace so that you can bear fruit for His glory for the rest of your life. It's not about me. It's not about you. It is about God. Don't let your pride rob you of that view of what is true and what is right. Let's pray. God, we got a lot of questions, a lot of things that we don't like sometimes in your word, if we're honest with ourselves. A lot of things that we don't understand. And that's not bad or wrong, God. It drives us to You. God, I don't understand everything in this passage. Loaded with implications. But I do know that I am to praise You for Your kindness and for Your severity. I don't understand all the implications of that, but I know it's true. I am to be a person who does not look at others with prejudice, prejudging them and elevating myself over them, degrading them because they're not like me. And God, if there is pride in my life, and I know that there is, I pray that the power of the cross of Jesus Christ would cut into that pride and cut it away. Do the surgery that needs to be done, God, as I wrestle with this sin that lives in my flesh. 
We'll remember back to Romans 7. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. But you are able, God, to do exceeding abundantly above anything I can think or imagine in me and through me in the midst of my sin. God, cut it away. Cut at that strong, arrogant, prideful root in me. In me, God. And may I look with grace upon other people. May I look at you with worship for the grace that you've shown me. And may I never elevate myself. But may I trust you to give me the elevated position of the finished work of Christ. Faithful is the one who calls you and He will bring it to pass. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I rest in your promises, God. I rest in your ability, in your work, not in my own. God, would you use some of these words to save sinners today? Have your way. And may we not be arrogant, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand for a benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.